This is the Shift Podcast. And it's Bruce Claggett. I've been sitting in for Shane Hewitt. You know, today on the Shift Daily Podcast, you know her name, you've heard her music, but do you know her story? Canadian icon Biff Naked guides us through her journey as a musician, a cancer survivor, and a philanthropist. Greg Fish, resident blogger and engineer at the Shift, explains how artificial intelligence generates these seemingly creative ideas. And are you feeling that uh, the heat of what seems to be like a never-ending era of inflation, you're finally in luck because Simone Lease has more details and gives us some advice, some things you can use from the Better Business Bureau. This is the Shift Podcast. And nice to be with you, and thanks for uh, listening. I'm Bruce Claggett, in for Shane Hewitt. Brendan Kelly and Bianca Rago are with me tonight, and lucky to have them because they saved my bacon in so many different ways. And uh, thank you for some of the messages uh, you have uh, sent in. Some really nice uh, things. Hey, Bruce, uh, you're doing a great job filling in. Oh, that's nice. No, that's not from a relative. But there is a question that also came in here. Bruce, do you have a podcast as Shane does? And a reminder that there is the Shift podcast. And even though it says Shane Hewitt and the Shift on it, even when there is a fill-in like yours truly, well... The podcast still exists. It still goes on. It's just a different voice in the host chair. And that voice for the next round will be me. Ah, yes. Oh, by the way, Halloween. Well, it's past. And we now round out 2022 with November and December. A business rush heading up to the holiday season. But this year, this year, our spending and budgets are facing another test. That test high inflation, hard to ignore this. Also, some high interest rates, especially especially if you're charging things or using some debt to pay for those things like, oh yeah, Christmas shopping. There are, however, some tips for staying on top of all of that. And this is a good news type thing because we do have people like Simone Liss with the Better Business Bureau of Mainland BC who has a lot of tips BBB does a good job in uh, keeping us in check with uh, things that we really should know about business. And Simone has some of the big challenges ahead. Simone, what do we need to know right now? Well, I mean, what we're realizing is that when we're entering into um, a time where people are really having to stretch their their bottom dollar, right? I mean, inflation's going up. Um, and that, you know, people's salary is not increasing to the rate of inflation. Um, so from a BBB perspective, really when, when people are thinking, how do I spend my dollar? We want to just really provide people with tools and tips on ways that they can stretch it. What are the overall things that you're recommending right now? Uh, different approaches that we may not even have thought of. Well, I mean, number one, I mean, first of all, you want to know how you're spending your money. Um, if you can think about uh, budgeting, for example, uh, experts recommend a 50, 30, 20%, uh, 50% of your money should go towards wants, 30% of your money can go to needs, and then 20% of your money can go to um, paying down debt or also savings. So that's one really good approach to overall thinking about your financial uh, state of mind. Uh, The Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has this really cool budgeting app on their website. 
Um, and I think that's a really good place to start is knowing your spending habits and then trying to look at ways that you can uh, sort of simplify and, and reduce in that in that line of reasoning. Do things get different when we head into higher inflation or a period of higher mortgage rates and that type of thing with budgets? Is it a different way of thinking and time to revisit? Absolutely. I mean, when we're thinking about how much money we we bring home, it's it's now an opportunity to look at everything that we're spending money on. And so, you know, one great tip is for you to actually look at your banking fees, contact your bank and see if there is any room for negotiation on those rates. Um, you know, if you have a long standing relationship with a bank, for example, and you see a fee on your statement and it doesn't make sense, uh, great relationship. It gives you an opportunity, <clears throat> excuse me, it gives you an opportunity to go back to the bank um, and see if there's any wiggle room. Uh, often, if you have um, a mortgage with a bank or if you have a line of credit with that bank, it gives you a little bit more um, bargaining power as well because uh, they want to keep you as a customer. And so that's one great way that you potentially could save money. I know years ago when I first got my charge card, I had a very high interest rate. And I guess everybody in their very first card has about that standard rate. And a friend of mine told me when my balance was rather high, have you ever talked to them about lowering the rate? And that one single change made all the difference. Is that still around? Or I mean, that was so many years ago for me. But uh, do we still have different interest rates uh, with uh, some of the bank cards? Absolutely. I mean, there's no reason why you can't shop around and look at different credit card offerings as well. Um, some credit card companies will offer you introductory rates, especially if you carry a balance, for example. Um, I would just be very careful to make sure you're reading their terms and conditions, uh, just to make sure you understand what the rate might be after the fact. Um, because that that could be, uh, you know, higher than what you're sitting at right now. Um, and then also some of these credit card companies also offer some great, um, you know, reward programs. And that can also be uh, applied to purchases. So there's no reason why you as a consumer can't shop around, why you can't meet with your bank and make sure that um, the accounts that you have set up for you work best with your spending habits or your credit needs. Do you see some businesses? Are you hearing stories of uh, people asking for money sooner or different sorts of conditions? We, you know, one of the things that have recently changed the whole infrastructure around credit card fees. Um, and so some of the um, businesses out there may now be charging their uh, clients for some of those fees. So I, I do think it's important uh, when you are dealing with any business that you understand all the fees that are being charged uh, and if you're not happy, you're a customer. So that gives you some power to shop around and, and talk to them about those fees. There are some things that the BBB does have oversight over and some that they don't. So people know uh, which things you have oversight and uh, can help customers out with. What are those areas? Well, I think um, I think right there, I think, you know, the first part of what people might not know about the Better Business Bureau is we're actually a not-for-profit organization. Uh, we're non-government. We're not regulatory. Um, and we are funded by businesses who um, must meet BBB accreditation standards. Um, so, you know, there are areas that we can support consumers in and there's areas that we can't. Uh, for example, um, consumers will often turn to the BBB for help when they're unhappy with a price that they paid for a product or service. Um, with, that's not a situation that the BEB will get involved with. 
often um, what we will do is we will act as an intermediary between a consumer and a business um, regarding disputes relating to things like um, the service wasn't fulfilled as promised, um, you know, issues with uh, the product's performance compared to what they thought they were going to experience, um, terms of a contract that maybe weren't clear. So those are just some examples of areas that the BEB can support with. Uh, we're also a great place that people can turn to for information. Um, if you come to the BEB for, you know, a business profile, what that does is it tells you how a business has been rated, their history with the BBB, um, if there has been any complaints, if there's been any feedback through our customer review process, uh, and then we do issue a rating, and, and of course, whether that business supports us uh, and is an accredited business or not. When you start to uh, take a look at some of the complaints coming in, there's two sides to every story. Tell me about that process. Absolutely. So the, you know, the BBB, we're not here as an advocate for either consumer or business. What we are here to do is try to re-engage communication between an unhappy consumer with the business that they dealt with. Um, and so our complaint process is really that it's a dispute resolution process. Um, it is a, a written process in which the consumer fills out a complaint form and is seeking a resolution. Uh, we, we receive that, we send it on to the business and we ask them to provide us with their perspective, their response. Um, the goal through this process is to try to re-engage communication and ultimately help these two parties come to their own resolution. Um, but we're not enforcing a decision on one party or another. We're not acting as a judge or a jury. Right. Uh, really what we're doing is facilitating communication and, and trying to help consumer and business re-engage. It is November. We're heading into uh, the Christmas shopping season. What are some of the big things that you're looking at for 2022 that may be different this year than in other years and people should be aware of? I think when people are stretching their dollar more than ever, they're very focused about who they're dealing with. Um, and I think so you'll see two sides of that coin. One is you'll see businesses heavily marketing and advertising. Um, one of the trends that we've been seeing over the last few years has been a significant increase in the number of both online scams that we're seeing and also online um, related issues that people are dealing with when they try to purchase from a company that turns out to be not legitimate. Um, so we can anticipate that we're going to continue to see some of those trends. Uh, and we're also seeing that consumers buying behavior is changing. Um, a lot of those complaints were coming through, um, you know, traditional purchasing online when you're shopping through a website. We're seeing more and more complaints coming through social media, for example, where consumers are just browsing and then they see an ad that catches their attention. And the next thing they know, they've made a purchase and the product is never received or isn't as promised. And sometimes it may be the consumer's own mistake. Uh, I'm only offering that as something I've done myself. Absolutely. I mean, part of what we're doing is trying to help facilitate communication, right? So, um, you know, when a consumer files a complaint with the Better Business Bureau, uh, if it is just a matter of they weren't clear on terms and conditions, and that's usually information that's shared back to the BBB, which is then shared back to the consumer. Um, you know, often what we look for as well are trends, um, because what we're trying to do is, you know, educate consumers so that they can avoid, um, you know, being disappointed with their the purchase that they've made. The other side of that is helping businesses develop as well. Um, and sometimes really what it is, is just how transparent is the business in their terms and conditions or how, how they communicated their message. And so part of our mandate is to review the complaints that we do get 
and then share that feedback back with businesses with the goal of making them provide more transparency and be better to avoid these kind of issues when they result. Sage advice, as they say, and that's uh, Simone List with the Better Business Bureau of Mainland BC. But wherever you are in the country, you can always go to bbb.org. And there are some great tips in there for finding out how you can manage uh, some of the money and what to look out for, especially in these difficult times. This is the Shift Podcast. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Shane Hewitt. You know, one of this country's hardest working performers happens to also be a class act. And how do you define that? It's a word we throw around sometimes very easily. Well, for me, a class act is someone who has overcome their own obstacles, some bumps along the journey of life, and continues to inspire others. Someone who performs maybe with with power, but continues to connect and lend a voice to those who are often not heard. Also, in this case, it's someone who is an amazing talent in their own right, but humble enough to sit back and let others take credit. Who am I talking about? Well, none other than Biff Naked. I was lucky enough to see her perform in Kelowna at Rock on the Lake this past summer. She is back touring now, working on a new documentary, and still making time to chat with us. Biff Naked, you were amazing in Kelowna and continue to be amazing. You know what? I love performing. I have, I don't know how to do anything else in many ways. Um, obviously, the pandemic really stopped um, a lot of us from being able to, to do uh, performances other than, other than Zoom and online performances, really. But um, once we got rolling again, it's just like an unstoppable train. And uh, I, I, I feel like, you know, it took me until now, you know, 30 years into my career, it took me until now where I, I really feel like I'm coming into my, uh, my prime. <laughs> you are amazing. <laughs> and the one imagine. thing that it still comes through, and I saw this myself in Kelowna, your ability to connect, you're strong, you come over so confidently. Is that the true you? Or is there something else happening inside? Well, you know, I think that um, I always make a reference to uh, Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli. There was a story I heard when I was a young performer, probably in the theater program at U of W. Um, and uh, Liza Minnelli was a little kid and really was get, growing weary. Her mom was like either signing autographs after a long night at a show. Uh, that she had performed in lies and was waiting to go and waiting to go and kind of pulling on her mom's skirt. And Judy Garland turned around and said, honey, mommy has to give the people what they want and then we can go for a hamburger. And I always <laughs> thought it was so funny. And I've said it my entire adult life to every dog I've ever had and even every husband I've ever had. Uh, and I think that's that's really the key. Um, I love performing. I wish I could do it every day. Um, sometimes we do. I think it's headed that way for 2023, which is great. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's just it's just all I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> your journey and your power comes through in each performance, I believe. And uh, that's amazing. Well, thank you. 
Um, But you're about to head off uh, for a new adventure, uh, heading to France, I believe, next week. Yes. Don't become a hematologist. Um, No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we are. um, We are shooting a documentary um, and really, um, you know, I am still pinching myself. I'm very humbled that anyone would want to uh, do a documentary about me. And I kind of, you know, have to rationalize. You know, I've never been the best singer in the world and I'm not the most, I haven't had the most tragic life uh, out of everyone else, but I have an adoption story mm-hmm. and I have a runaway story and, mm-hmm. and I have a, you know, health, health survival story. So you I are a survivor. Let's not, let's not uh, yeah. make light of that. <laughs> there is something in being a survivor and many survivors out there can really look up to you and say, wow, thank you. You're one of us. Oh, and I look up to them, and it, it was uh, it was all those millions of Canadian women who are doing Run for the Cure the year I was going through uh, chemo and radiation. I, you know, I I didn't go through chemo and radiation as Beth Walker because at the time I was married to my second husband, mm-hmm. so Walker. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I went through it as Biff Naked. You know, really and truly, it was. Um, you know, I had. I mean, you know, I brought my cane and top hat to every. Uh, waiting room and every chemo appointment and stuff like that. And I think that that actually served me very well uh, because I was never down, uh, not for a minute. It was just, um, it was serendipity to be in a room full of other people where you had that um, mutual connection and you could laugh together and cry together uh, with total strangers, you know, and their families. And that was what brought me into volunteering um, and that's a gift that I will always be grateful for. I will always be so grateful for the lived experience that I have at breast cancer because, you know, hopefully it, it, it makes me a better volunteer. Tell me about this documentary, the decision to actually uh, go ahead with it. Um, that's not easy because it's going to open some wounds. Oh, most definitely. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty, uh, as a, as I say and allude to, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm a polite performer. My mother, uh, my adoptive mom, is a Minnesota girl, and so you know, it's not like we told dark secrets ever. Right. Always the kind of kind of girls we were, like you know, the punk rock Mary Tyler Moore, you know, the punk rock Rosen Island. Basically, everything's fine, you know. And so, yeah, going to a vulnerable place, it's different than writing a memoir for sure, and. Uh, you know, it, you have to be vulnerable and it's, it's all the wounds, the wounds and the scars. And, uh, it's going to be interesting. Jennifer Abbott is the director. Right. Uh, of course, everybody knows her from, uh, the corporation. Uh, but she has a powerful film that I have to insist that you watch. Uh, yeah. it really draws the parallels between her sister's, uh, breast cancer and her grieving her sister and with climate grief. And it is such a powerful and beautiful movie. It's called the magnitude of all things. And uh, I, I really think that it would uh, to have this individual, the way they see through a lens and the way they edit, I just can't even imagine at all how I got so lucky uh, to work uh, and be in the capable hands of this, of this person. So what are you expecting? I know that's always 
going to be difficult with anyone asking that question. And life has been unexpected for you, if I could <laughs> volunteer that. But uh, what do you expect in the next year going forward? What, maybe a better way to ask is what would you like to see in the next year for Biff Naked going forward? <laughs> well, you know what we're up to with uh, France is a perfect example of uh, of us uh, kind of dragging a film crew along with our lives the way they are. We're going to be, um, you know, working on Mona Lisa Healing, which is uh, a, a company that we started. There's a, a component of this company called Mona Lisa Life. I'm still trying to get my certification uh, to become a full-time death doula. And uh, that's something that's very important to me. And also, I want to rescue all the dogs. Yeah. Um, uh, who has the time in the room, but we all try. And uh, and then trying to do shows. The Ibificus uh, anniversary tour is being planned for next year. And uh, we still have a, a new album coming out. So it's exciting. I think I'd like to choreograph a, a, a dance. I don't know. <laughs> Where does the energy come from? <laughs> Where do you tap into know. this? I don't know. You know, I get up uh, today. We got up at three thirty in the morning, and uh, I just can't. You know, I don't. I don't think I'm an insomniac. We went to bed at eight o'clock, um, but I just I love life. I love being alive, and uh, I love people a lot. And I just think that um, you know, uh, I had great parents. I have great a great birth mom mm-hmm. uh, who lives out here in Ontario, and. Um, yeah, I have a big mouth, and I'm a chatty person, and I just think that uh, I, f- I find adventure. Misadventure always finds me. Misadventure and, uh, does find you. Sometimes misfortune. And, yes. uh, and certainly, uh, you've had your bumps, uh, but you're coming through the bumps, and you continue on. And that is absolutely empowering for so many people. We're heading into a difficult time. We're in a difficult time, but 2023 is going to be difficult. And we see signs of that all the time, um, of things maybe not getting as good as we had hoped. I know social justice is extremely important for you. What would you like to see? How can we, as a society, change? Honestly, I really think that um, the pandemic has really exacerbated social wounds that yeah. that were already there. Um, I think the only thing that is really going to save our souls and, or, or our butts is uh, really to be more uh, understanding with one another and be nicer to one another. I think that the problem now, um, because people who were living in poverty previously are now really living in poverty and people who you know were on the edge are now living in poverty things are really gonna they're very very tough for families yeah. and for individuals i just think that there's we have to take care of one another we just have to and uh you know people are gonna you know the way the world is changing so fast people are gonna they're gonna eventually come to a point where they want to help one another i believe it with all my heart Tell me about a moment where you realized how powerful your music is in connecting people. Do you see that in an audience when you look out? Do you see the other side? Is there a moment where you can actually say, wow, this is really having an impact. This is powerful what I'm doing. Have you come across that? Um, you know, I've been very, very lucky. 
to have uh, been doing this for a long time. The first time I had an opportunity to make a record was in 1994. And um, there was uh, John Dexter, uh, Vancouverite was uh, very generous uh, in allowing me to artistically really have carte blanche um, and uh, lyrically go crazy, go bananas um, on subject matter. And I had a song on my first record called Tell On You that mm -hmm. was just really piano and vocal. And it was called Tell On You Letter to My Rapist. And this is 1994. Um, I was a, quite the riot girl in 94 but it was really hard to find a place for that particular song in a rock and roll set mm -hmm. uh, in a bar with the mixed crowd and uh and my band of boys on stage so what i would do is go out into the beginning of the show with no announcement and i would stand in the center of the stage and just sing it a cappella uh, from top to bottom and um for me it was almost like I, I always say it was like stabbing myself with a fork in front of people um, in a way because it got me, if I could get through that song and the, and the, you know, the heckling and, and stuff that would go on and it would, yeah. uh, if I could get through that song, I'd get through the whole set. And that was always my, uh, my, I guess, litmus paper in a way, but there are always, always other young women in the audience who were, connecting with yeah. me and whether it was uh lyrically which was often the case or whether it was just the you know the act the act of what i was doing was connecting with them and uh that was something that really forever changed um how i did shows and uh and i always from that point forward knew that i had to be my most vulnerable uh to to really be able to connect with people is it difficult at times? Do you have some time where you're such a public figure, you have to sit back and just have alone time? I know you do mm. yoga. Is that the... I do. I do yoga at four right. in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, I find uh, I did used to get more overwhelmed when I was younger. I'm going to say like, I don't know, like maybe say 99, 2000. I think that we we might have done. I'm going to say 300 shows a year for, I don't know. I don't know how many years in a row, but it was quite a few. And I had never had a vacation, but it didn't occur to me. Um, and sometimes I would find that I got very overwhelmed. And uh, the first vacation I ever had was breast cancer and being diagnosed wow. with breast cancer. It was the first time I ever got off tour. So I, I had to laugh because I was so relieved uh, to be able to stay home with my dogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, equally relieved that it wasn't my mother or my sister being diagnosed. It was me. I thought, I'm tough. This is great. This is great. I can stay home. And that really made me look at my life. If I thought breast cancer was, you know, something that was preferred to going back uh, on the road. It was very isolating, being the only female. What a very honest thing to say. That's so powerful. And uh, we would never think that in the hardest time that there could be something like that that has you evaluate your life. Oh, 100%. But, you know, being in enmeshed in a room with other women 
who are also chemo patients. I had never been around other women. I'd never had a sorority, nothing. I'd only ever toured with uh, all these band band guys, mostly, you know, peppered here and there, sometimes with with a couple of my girlfriends on the base. But, you know, being immersed in the breast cancer chemo wars was serendipity for me. It was amazing to be able to be around all that goddess energy every day it was absolutely transformational for me and i think that um you know as a result we empowered each other you know um it's just it was a really remarkable time in my life if naked you're an incredibly strong woman an inspiration to many and many different categories people that want to follow you and your journey your next steps what are the best ways to do that um, websites and everything else going forward in the next year, months and year ahead? Oh, you're so kind. Um, you know, I love social media. I don't do it enough. I still haven't figured out how to schedule uh, posts. So I'm kind of at the mercy of my own my Do you own write schedule. your own tweets still? Always. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> and I, I tend to, I, I have uh, not been all that, um, consistent with Twitter half the time because either my phone runs out of battery or I'm racing around, but uh, I'm still on Twitter at, at Biff Naked and I still like Twitter. Twitter is a great place to find out about, um, you know, about what you can do to help. You can share, you can follow hashtags like disability poverty and you can make a difference by helping to amplify voices that need amplification um, Instagram, I kind of always said it's kind of like a magazine. People kind of flip through it. You know, it's, it's relaxing yeah. for most people. It's entertaining. I'm still on there. Uh, I'm trying to be on TikTok. I'm trying, <laughs> but uh, it's hard. I used to just do videos of my uh, little dog. And uh, then my manager was like, you, you have to talk. <laughs> I was like, really? Like, you know, I'm not like 20. I don't really want to be on the camera. But um, so I'm trying. But I'm on, I'm on TikTok. And, of course, uh, you know, it's all connected to Facebook anyway. So I'm and easy to find. the documentary is going to come out uh, when? Uh, well, to be honest, if we can, uh, at this point, we are going to be shooting in europe in central america and possibly india uh, as well as canada and Mm -hmm. uh hoping for early 2024 at this point terrific thank you so much for sharing time with me i feel so much better having talked with you um Uh, i feel better talked with you oh thank you so nice yeah until the next time we have a chance to chat thank you and uh, all the best and stay safe Stay as healthy as possible, and we look forward to every step along the journey. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking with you today. This is the Shift Podcast. Time for the world of weird things with Craig Fish. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird Weird things things. with Greg Fish. And weird things indeed. The latest one is generative AI. It's meant to help writers, artists, and even coders, computer coders, 
but it may be stealing from them first, creating legal and ethical nightmares. Greg Fish, nice to have you back. Uh, We don't have a chance to talk very often because I'm the fill-in guy. Um, But Greg, uh, what's this all about? Well, it is about all of these really interesting AIs and how they seem to be able to generate things that look artistic and creative and very useful at first glance. And you wonder how did they do it? And the answer is a little bit more depressing than you might think. So I kind of wanted to dive into that a little bit. And and so I definitely use the products of AI a lot. I've programmed AI models. I've studied how they worked. Um, And I was, of course, very interested in, you know, how did these generative networks get their, um, get all of the information that they need, get all of the um, get all of the pictures, get all the code, get all of the pros from their training sets. And I kind of followed it to its logical conclusion. And the result is, well, they just steal them from the internet. <laughs> okay. Um, but how is artificial intelligence supposed to work? What were you hoping to find? Well, I was hoping to find that they have something that's somehow curated there's there's samples that they've determined okay these are high quality samples this is what we want to use we will get uh different permutations of these or we'll have licensing deals with let's say uh an official agency so for example uh you know getty or whoever kind of licenses this um this kind of uh, creative content because there's a lot of uh, libraries out there where you can pay a monthly fee and you have so many images that you can use in your website, you know, stock photos, there's different premium versions of these. And I'm sure that they could make a deal and, you know, the, the actual artists and creators get compensated um, and they get all the materials that they need and they train based on those materials and we go from there. But it turns out that the reality is that they basically just scrape the internet for whatever is available and use that as the training set. Now, I'm looking at your worldofweirdthings.com, and I actually see the photo of uh, one of these. And um, I'm thinking, yeah, I've seen things like this before, uh, this uh, this art from uh, gener- generative AI. And uh, I, I kind of get it. But uh, what? where are the examples? What are the – where would we see generative AI in our everyday lives? Where are we stumbling across it? So right now, there are definitely some news outlets who are using them, places like The Verge, Boing Boing, several of like the major, more tech-savvy publications have been using them. There's also been a number of blogs that have switched over to them, specifically uh, very technology-related ones. There's also There have also been some contests where people have entered generative AI and uh, won, which was uh, quite a controversial process. But there are also several tools that essentially allow writers to go ahead and generate big pieces of uh, content for their novels or for uh, marketing or for um, uh, PR uh, snippets and purposes. Um, And and that particular software is also trained on, uh, believe it or not, random blog posts, things that are just open 
to the world on different publications. Uh, they basically just consume different examples of language and they spit out things that seem very comparable to what they've essentially scraped off the internet. So World of Word Things, because it is open to the internet, was more than likely scraped by some of these tools and this material was used to train these AIs among probably a million other articles. Now, I'm going to bounce this off you, Greg, and tell me if I'm off base because I don't know a lot about uh, AI or any of this, but I am reminded that I do jump into Google Docs a lot and I type away on things. I do a lot of writing and I post a lot of my writing to Twitter. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm writing things in a Google Doc, I find that the words are kind of writing ahead of me and finishing my sentence. Is that a form of the same technology or something different? Yeah, it's it's a form of the same technology, only this is trained slightly differently to more emulate things that it has seen or things that are recommended. So it's basically trying to give you auto-suggestions to kind of finish what you're trying to type. So Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. How far could this potentially go where a writer could end up uh, using AI to finish uh, an entire article? Um, What would they end up doing and uh, how would it work? How would it look? Well, there are several tools for that right now and they do an okay job. They're not... Uh, they're not super creative. They're not really into like they're either way into purple prose and need to be toned down or they're very dry and boring and writers need to kind of go over and spice them up a little bit. Uh, So the actual uh, generative part of it does already exist. Like you can already use these tools. They're already out there. They're already being used for uh, marketing and PR purposes uh, to kind of draft out the main outlines. Then you have the writers kind of go over them and punch them up a little bit. So it does seem like something that was more written by a human. And like I said, that's that's already out. That's already exists. That's already being used quite a bit. How does the AI actually learn? Uh, I think you touched on that a bit, but it uh, go, it must scour information and and you're saying in fact stealing some of these uh different things but how does it how does it work i'm still trying to figure that out okay well that that depends how far we want to go into it because we can have let's like a go into the writing side plus. of it the writing side is what really fascinates and scares me at the same time and of course you're a writer does it bother you does it scare you well i mean primarily my day job is writing code. So actually, speaking of which, we can talk about the GitHub Copilot, which is another piece of software that essentially trained itself on publicly available code that people have written. And possibly there are some reports that it may actually be figuring out ways to very sneakily look at private code that computer um, computer scientists and programmers write which is a little bit more disturbing because that code does tend to have, you know, proprietary secrets. It can deal with uh, personal identifiable information with some security keys. So there's a lot of very serious concerns there if that's what it's doing. Um, but let's, let's get back a little bit. Uh, so different- we'll hit on the code in a moment. Let's get back yeah. to the writing side of it. And then I want to pick up on the coding because you're right. There is more there, but when it comes to the writing, what are we looking at? Uh, how far does it go and how does it do this? So 
there are different kinds of architectures for neural networks for different kinds of things. So for art, it would use something called convolutional neural networks that break up an image and look for different lines and segments and things that kind of let it identify objects. And then it mixes and matches these different features and traits and colors and pixels until it resembles something like a picture in its training set. For writing, it uses something called a recurrent neural network, which essentially builds recursively on what it has created before. So, for example, it takes a big chunk of text, it analyzes which words came before um, came before certain ones and came after certain ones, and how certain parts and pieces of sentence structure work. That that data. Is, is really annotated so the network can understand it as part of its training set. So then it essentially builds what look like phrases and spits them out. And if you have enough iterations that it goes over under um, some sort of supervision, either human supervision or machine supervision, which kind of grades the quality of the writing, you will end up something that kind of approximates human language. But in reality, it is essentially a mashup of different things and different articles and different uh, sources where it kind of learned what words go together and is just trying to rapid fire guess at a million guesses a second what would that text really look like? So you must see some incredible errors, for lack of a better way, uh, from this where uh, you're reading something and then you say, oh, yeah, that's one of those AI weird things that have just uh, cropped up and I see it and that's where it falls apart. Does that happen? Yeah, it absolutely happens, especially if it's not a very well-trained model, if it's not a very large model, it can't do as many guesses, it can't bring in as much information for training it can't um, it doesn't have enough understanding of how language works you will see some things that just look very uh, bizarre just there's actually a famous uh, obituary that was written by ai that is absolutely hilarious because it just it starts off like something that sounds like okay well that sounds like someone wrote in a very uh, basic obituary for a person and then just completely breaks down to a point of absurd hilarity so that's actually pretty common for these uh, garden variety networks but the really big ones like the the gbt3 the the industrial networks that use billions of parameters to learn they are much closer to human speech it just you actually have to like really try and struggle and see you know this looks a little off this this is this i'm not sure somebody would use it this way something's not quite right here yeah. but even then these networks are getting better it's interesting uh, a good writer can use different ways of conveying tone and feeling and emotion and even use uh, something like a short sentence and then a longer one but the shorter sentence can kind of give panic or something like that are we there yet when it comes to ai writing we are not for the simple reason that that's not something that we quite understand yet uh, there are some attempts to do this, but writers who have used these artificial neural networks and their models say that it's 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 still not there. It's still a little bit off. It's trying to essentially emulate styles of things that are fed into it and annotate it. So they need to be specifically trained to do that. And this again, we kind of get back to the whole point of 
while the way that these networks work is terribly exploitative because you're essentially feeding it information that humans have created and you are then charging authors, artists, editors, whoever to essentially use the results of that free labor that you've essentially scanned in. So this is the part that I find disconcerting because in my mind, you know, when I create software, the idea is that the software, a lot of the stuff that I do has to deal with um, automation, with business intelligence, with streamlining things, with processing very large amounts of data that in a way that that is useful and understandable right. to people. So essentially, I'm trying to save people work. So the computer does all the work and we reap all the benefit. But here it's a little bit of reverse. You know, we do all the work, the computers gobble it up and then sell us versions of it to make the people who designed the neural network money. So it it, it seems a little bit um, unfair to put it mildly. And that's what I'm primarily concerned with in this article. Like how how do we take advantage of these generative tools but do it in a non-exploitative way where we're not just feeding the algorithms or not just feeding neural networks, we're actually benefiting from them instead of just using our free labor to feed them. Right. We're talking with Greg Fish, Weird Things, and uh, talking about generative AI. And uh, Greg, you are a coder. What are some of the big concerns, getting back to that one, that you're really worried about heading into the future, 2023 and beyond? I think that technology for which we do not have good ethical guidelines, we have seen how this backfires very badly. We have seen the kind of problems that it creates. So kind of just just going gung-ho on these tools without really wrestling with the implications of doing so seems very problematic. Uh, because you are essentially potentially putting people out of business because the things that they used to advertise themselves have been basically stolen and using and used to extend the the machines the 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 business for the neural networks and the particular style, the particular branding on which people have built themselves in their writing, in their art, um, get anything creative kind of goes away. Now with coding tools like Copilot, it's a little bit different because then you start getting into potential security issues. You start getting into, into potentially spying on trade secrets in using code uh, for people who essentially have said, okay, yes, we have public facing code. It's open source. You can use this code if you want to, but at the same time, they did not expect that Microsoft would basically change the terms of uh, the terms and conditions where in, you know, a couple lines of an eight, what is what amounts in 800 page document in point 10 font. They said, Oh yeah, by the way, we can just use your code to do whatever we want and feel like, okay, thanks. Bye. Uh, all of these things, uh, it's it's problematic because it, it really comes down to the fact that that we have technology is supposed to help us. Like that's kind of my to solve potentially issues. naive view. Yeah, it's supposed to it's supposed to solve issues. It's not supposed to create issues. We're supposed to be exploiting technology to have better lives, to have a better quality of life. We the, the technology is not supposed to be exploiting us 
and making our lives more stressful and reducing our earning potential and quality of life by essentially stealing work from us. So what has to be done here in Greg Fish's view? Do we uh, have to take a kind of a different direction? Is it something that is regulation? Would that even work? Um, I'm thinking in a world it can't work, can't get everyone agreeing to the same thing. But uh, what do you think needs to, uh, to be done to keep this in check? I think there's definitely there definitely has to be some regulation and some means of recourse for people who have whose work has been used without their permission. And we cannot the, the 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 big problem is that the current legal theory behind it is that if it's been posted publicly, then you're fine with it being used. Or if you agree to a certain terms of content that says, "Oh yeah, by the way, we can use it however we want." We have to have some sort of a pushback on it that says, well, no, you can't just say we can do whatever we want and say that that's, then that's a valid legal contract. Because um, if, if you are making it difficult to agree to it, if you are flooding people with a lot of technical and legal jargon, they're not really going to understand what you want from them. So there's definitely, there have been definitely cases where you can say, oh, well, they agree to it. Um, and judges have said, well, that's great that they agree to it, but the problem is you can't pro- you can't force them to agree to that. Like you can't hold them to this deal because this deal is paid is patently absurd. So what I think what it's going to take is it's going to take some lawsuits from artists and from groups representing these artists, um, from from different companies who. Uh, believe that their code has been abused and different foundations who believe their code has been abused um, against some of these uh, some of these tools and essentially say you have to pay us licensing fees and you have to pay us penalties and not just settle on a small sum but actually really bloody these companies that are making these tools so the next time that they need to borrow the training set data and they need to resell it they're properly compensating the people whose work they use to create this. Are you optimistic that we can get this under check and use generative AI in a more meaningful way? I think that if we follow that particular rule, if we have laws around this usage, we can absolutely make it equitable and make it work and use generative AI in a decent way, in a way that actually is not exploitative, in a way that is truly helpful and beneficial uh, for everyone involved. Thanks so much for your time. A pleasure. And uh, thanks for the depth of, uh, of uh, looking into this. The article, of course, is on worldofweirdthings.com. The headline, if you want to uh, look for it, Google search it, the brave new exploitive world of generative AI. Greg, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 